You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Campus Beat. My name is Dinah Jansen, and I have the great pleasure of welcoming into my virtual studio today, Professor Catherine McKittrick of Gender Studies here at Queen's University. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. Lots of really exciting stuff to talk about today, as you are a key player in the development of a new BA minor here at Queen's University in Black Studies in the Faculty of Arts and Science. Uh, That's commencing in the fall of 2021. But a BA minor in Black Studies, this is pretty huge for the university in terms of its history. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Um, We're excited. Uh, Black faculty and non-Black faculty are all excited about the, the minor. Um, and yeah, it speaks to longstanding um, troubles at Queens, but it also speaks to the possibilities of Queens um, that began, as you know, with um, donors and, and scholars like Robert Sutherland, um, campus workers like Elfie. Um, there's all sorts of ways to sort of think about Blackness generously um, at Queens when it can be a space that's fraught. Okay, thank you for that. So before we get into uh, the nuts and bolts of how to make a whole minor program in Black Studies at Queen's University, tell us a little bit about yourself and the research and teaching you're doing over in Gender Studies. So I've been at Queen's since 2004, um, and I teach in Gender Studies. I teach mostly Black Studies courses or or courses that focus on race and anti-racism. And um, I found that this has been a really beautiful and welcoming department in terms of interdisciplinary scholarship, in terms of respecting um, professors' uh, desires to teach in their area and their field, um, as well as my colleagues who all kind of do, are committed to um, anti-racism. And so, um, yeah, and so now, I mean, I mostly teach Black Studies courses, which is something I never dreamed of. My PhD is in what was then called Women's Studies. Um, And uh, I came into a department of gender and women's studies specifically to teach about, you know, patriarchy, um, gender, oppression, race, colonialism, resistance. And Queens has been the place where I can actually really focus on doing those that kind of teaching but focusing on black studies so it's been really really such a wonderful and generous department amazing thank you we are talking today as i mentioned at the top about the development of this new ba minor in black studies here at queen's university You've talked a little bit about some of the courses that you're teaching. Can you tell us the state of Black Studies at Queen's University now as uh, discrete courses in various departments? What does it look like? It is actually very impressive. We have over between 20 and 30 Black Studies courses that focus solely on Black communities. when we began the minor, I thought that we would be scrambling for courses, be scrambling for faculty, Um, And the courses were there. They're in development studies and through the the subfield of African studies. They're in the English department, the work of Chris Bonji and Kristen Mariah, for example, who Kristen Mariah, who's a recent hire who does black sound studies. They're in the politics department, um, geography. We have actually, I would consider one of the stronger um, faculty uh, groups who who studies black geographies. Um, And so we were um, pleasantly surprised that there are a number of Black, Black Studies courses that are, that are already on the books. And the purpose of the, um, one of the reasons we decided to go forward with the Black Studies minor is because those courses were there um, and because the faculty were there. So that we now have over 20 Black faculty at Queens as well, which is, which is changed. Like that's a big change for me since 2004 where there were less than 10, I think. I think there were probably six of us around 2004. And so, yeah, we have 
we have the we have the people to do this work um and so this minor is is one way to sort of express what is already here mm -hmm. okay so what motivated the desire to develop then a, a cohesive minor program in black studies to really bring all of these discrete courses together into one one program the motivation i think was through student demand. Since I began at Queen's, there I've always had Black students who attend my courses and who want to learn more about Black history, Black Canadian history, and Black studies. And so for me, that is the most important, that was the most important demand. There are other really important demands like the Picardy Report, the Henry Report, and these um, endless reports of how to think through and combat racism at Queens. So there is another level um, that Queens is committed to and you know, um, uh, pushing against structural racism. But for me, um, the students it, are the most important inspiration. And then also um, combined with students is the faculty working with um, scholars like Beverly Mullings, um, Grace Ogunyankin, Kristen Mariah, who I mentioned, um, Yolanda Buka. There's a lot of really great scholars that have sort of, um, that have inspired, inspire me to kind of continue to work and make this a cohesive, a cohesive program. So I think it's on those three levels, like combating structural racism, you know, faculty work, and of course, student inspiration. I like how you talked about some of your colleagues. Uh, with whom are you working to work out some of the nuts and bolts of developing this program right now? Right now, I'm working with closely with Danita Arthurs, who's the um, office manager at in gender studies and who has helped me with the real nuts and bolts. So that's the charts, that's the courses, <laughs> that's putting everything together um, on the, the administrative side. Um, and then I'm also working with FAS, of course, and with the Queen's Black Faculty and Staff Caucus, which it, we formed in 2017. Um, and so we, they're part of this conversation as well. Amazing. So what does the process actually look like to build a whole program? A course as any professor at Queen's or any university, as well as our teaching fellows, know that putting together courses is quite the workload, but a whole minor sounds like a pretty big endeavor, especially when you're starting from scratch. But you have a lot of different courses that are already being taught in the different mm -hmm. departments. So what steps are being taken along the way from the inception of this idea to actual approval and execution in 2021 fall? It is a lot. Um, I feel like um, it's a lot of paperwork, but there is a framework in place, um, the QCAPS framework, where they have a template and they say, you know, fill in these, fill in this template. Um, and as you said, uh, because we already had the, many of the courses, um, it was really a matter of, you know, researching what courses we have, thinking through which courses have um, Black content that's that, that specifically focuses on Black communities, thinking about courses that attend to Black and Indigenous communities, and, and how do they fold into the minor. So there was, there is the sort of paperwork process where it's like you get that form, you fill it in, um, you contact faculty, you contact departments, will you be willing to include this course, you know, on Caribbean history or on African politics, um, and you just sort of put it all together. So it is, I think it, and, and, and part of that project is to justify the why, why Black Studies. And for us, it was, you know, we've, I've been, we've been working, I've been working on this sort of indirectly and directly with Sammy King and Kinesiology and Health Studies since probably 2015. Okay. And so, you know, in some ways we could say this is responding to the most recent iteration of Black Lives Matter or Picardy, um, but we started thinking about this long before then. So it, uh, it also is a matter of creating a program that speaks to um, those long-standing um, uh, 
processes of anti-racism um, that we want to institutionalize at Queen's. And so that's part of the why, I think. That's, mm -hmm. you know, so the, the application itself, that template is underwritten by this larger question of why, why would you do Black studies at Queen's? What, what would it look like? What's, what are the learning outcomes? And so it's a much, it's a matter of sort of pairing that data of the, you know, the collection of, of all the data of the courses with that, that more political um, message that you want to get across. Okay. So are there other models or are there models from other universities uh, that are helping you to build the scaffolding for the Black Studies program? And uh, attendant to that, are there um, models, per, for instance, from existing programs like Jewish studies that, mm -hmm. that you might be able to emulate? Yeah, we, in terms, at Queen's, we use the Indigenous Studies model as our model. And we worked closely with that template that they had produced um, as a way to sort of at, you know, get at those nuts and bolts that you were talking about, but also to, uh, it allowed, it actually, when I read the Indigenous Studies model, it allowed me to think very capaciously and generously about what Black Studies could be. And so, um, if you look at the Indigenous Studies um, minor, major, media, or the Black Studies minor, you'll see courses that are about equity, and you think of, and they're not necessarily directly about race, or, you know, Black people in the diaspora, but they do speak to questions of equity, diversity, and inclusion. So the Indigenous Studies model was really, really useful for thinking about not the, 100, not the courses that are 100% Black Studies, but about the courses that will complement Black Studies. And for that reason, we have over 100 courses um, that are part of the Black Studies minor. It's the most interdisciplinary minor at, or program at Queen's, actually. So we have, you know, kinesiology and health studies, we have, you know, gender studies, we have, you know, a couple of biology courses and so on and so forth. So that Indigenous studies model was really, really useful. And then York University has a certificate in Black Studies. It's new, new. I think it's maybe two or three years old. Mm -hmm. um, it's, an, it's been an excellent model in terms of... Um, Black studies, interdisciplinarity. It's also been um, a hopeful model because their enrollment has something like, you know, increased by 400% in the certificate program. Like they don't know what to do with all the students that want to take do a, a certificate in Black studies, which is really exciting. It's a different landscape than Queens. So, yeah. you know, um, it is York, uh, but you know, and then Dalhousie has a minor in Black studies. Uh, that began with by um, it was initiated by Afua Cooper, the historian. So, um, and and it's also been a great model. Um, again, and they focus from from what I remember, their focus is on Black Canadian studies, which is really wonderful as well. Now let's get down right into the nitty gritty. Why Black studies? You 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 mentioned this a couple of times. What is the goal? Why? The why of Black Studies is, I think it's different for different people. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what the why is for me. But I think if you had an interview with, you know, a wet from history or a Beverly from geography, they'd have a different take. Um, for me, uh, I think it's really important to introduce students um, to the question of liberation and to enter into conversations about Black communities and other marginalized communities through um, how they've struggled against white supremacy and how they've struggled against um, racism and racial violence. And that for me is the why. I mean, it's the why in everything I teach, it's, it's extremely important. And the minor is intended to um, speak to that through, for example, partnerships with other departments that, so we could have a speaker series. So, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we have, you know, there's a, there's a couple of courses in kinesiology and health studies that are, will be in the minor. So what does a speaker, a cross-campus speaker series about Black liberation or anti-racist liberation look like when kinesiology, nursing, arts and science, and engineering are all 
launching um, launching uh, uh, presentations about about those very questions. So for me, that's the why. The why is like how do we how do we talk about this and how do we teach students about um, about kind of decolonial work and doing the doing the doing the work of that. <laughs> so it's not just about this is what black people do or you know, here's a course on hip hop and black men are misogynist, right? Like like it's not we don't want it to be your typical um descriptive like this is the you know, this is what black people do, but instead we want to say this is what you can learn from black people about what liberation is. So non-essentializing Exactly. experiential learning exactly exactly yeah. exactly and really and really committing to that and noticing that in um the long long history you know from you can see it from slave narratives to the present that that experiential knowledge um provides new ways of thinking about liberation and freedom um that aren't just focused on black people but are focused on collaboration and focused on, you know, thinking relationally with non-Black communities. Um, and so one of the things I think that has come up quite a bit in conversations that I've had with um, administrators at Queen's about the Black Studies minor is when I say the Black Studies minor isn't just about Black people, they're like, what? And I'm like, no, it's about like we we all want to get free, right? So it's about it's about trans people, it's about queer people, it's about indigenous people, it's about alliances. It's not it's not grounded in this idea that black people have this special knowledge that you know that only they can have, and we'll just talk about that. Um, it's about um, cooperating with other people and creating new ways of of relating to each other. Which is why folks, non-Black folks, can also participate in, in the minor as well. Yeah, ideally. I mean, many of my graduate students who are Black Studies students aren't Black, right? They, but they come to work with me because they're interested in liberation, they're interested in freedom, and they're, they're extremely invested in what Black scholars have to say about that. Um, and yeah, and they want to model that in their own work, so... Yeah. Okay. So we've talked a lot as well about the interdisciplinary nature of the Black Studies minor that will be coming to Queen's in fall 2021. But for some of our non-academic listeners out there, maybe we can talk a little bit more about what is interdisciplinarity really is and uh, what the benefits of interdisciplinary analysis is for Black Studies. So can you give us an idea too as to what students might be doing in practice for the benefit mm. of listeners who aren't in academia? Yeah, interdisciplinarity is, Black Studies has always been interdisciplinary and it's really, really important, I think, um, to think across disciplines. Um, so hopefully, so I mean, there's a few ways of thinking about interdisciplinarity. One is that it's a, the bringing together of more than one discipline. Um, and combining different disciplines to create a lens through which you analyze, say, oppression. Um, but the other way to think about interdisciplinarity that's more interesting to me is through what I just mentioned around collaboration and working together and bringing ideas together in a way to generate new ideas about liberation. Um, and so the interdisciplinarity, I think, um, will I don't know I just feel like there's there's so so much to it I love the idea that you can take a course on you know Nigerian geographies and um, uh, ecology in southern Africa and questions of race in Jane Eyre you know, I love the idea of thinking about race across ideas and thinking about blackness across ideas. And so hopefully the students will be able to work um, across multiple disciplines to, as I said, think through how different people and different texts provide clues about how we might fight white supremacy. 
Um, and I think that, and that's, that's useful. I mean, it's really, really useful to work with, work with not just one narrow idea about what anti-racism is or what race is. And so the interdisciplinarity will, I think, allow, like it will be an opening, I hope, um, for, for many students, especially those who aren't familiar with Black Studies. So I feel it's a very, very flexible program. I'll add that as well. So you could be in your third year at Queen's and pop into the minor and probably get a minor in Black Studies by the end of your fourth year. There's an openness in terms of the courses that are available and there's not a requirement that you have to have a first year course in Black Studies that's an intro. Um, the intro, the, the sort of canonical Black Studies courses are third year courses. But I think that that also speaks to that interdisciplinarity. So hopefully, you know, if there's a student in history or there's a, a student in um, nursing or a student in, even in engineering where, so that they can enter in later in their degree, um, but already have courses that are speaking to these very questions of what Black Studies is. Um, and then I think the other way to, the other, I think, important factor is there is an activist scholarship angle to all of this that I mm -hmm. haven't really brought up, which is, you know, as you mentioned earlier, like the experiential knowledge. Um, and so there will be connections made um, through uh, professors like Lisa Gunther, who works on anti-prison work, um, where you, where students are, can, can also think about Black studies outside the classroom. So thinking about interdisciplinary in that way too, through activism and organizing is also a possibility. So it's not just situated in the academy. Um, so I hope that, you know, I hope that multiplicity is, you know, I hope it gives students a texture or like a textured idea of what Black Studies is. Does that make sense? Yes, it absolutely does. <laughs> yeah, like I'm, I'm very excited. Like I feel like in some ways I feel like interdisciplinarity, I don't know. I feel like interdisciplinarity can sometimes be too much. Like it's all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, I'm an engineer. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm, I'm engineering. Like I have to learn about Du Bois now. And you're like, sort of like, but um, I like to think of it as, I love to think of it as, um, as a space of possibility and where if you're curious, we're here. All right. So the university has also just recently announced the creation of a Queen's National Scholar Chair in Black Studies in the Faculty of Arts and Science, who will also play a pivotal role in the expansion of Black Studies at Queen's, in addition to QNS appointments to support the Black Studies program. So in this regard, what is meant by the chair's pivotal role? When the QNS committee makes its hiring decisions, what will the QNS chair in Black Studies be tasked to do aside from their own teaching and research? I'm very excited about this chair. Um, I, I'm extremely impressed that the chair exists. I have to say like it just that, that, um, that FAS uh, was very creative with their QNS lines mm -hmm. um, and decided to um, roll out one of those lines as a, as a chair. Um, so at the level of representation, I think it's lovely. I think it'll be the second chair in Black Studies in Canada. The first would be the Black Studies chair at Dalhousie. So that in itself is amazing. Um, the other, and I think, so the, the chair, there, there'll be, I think some certain expectations for the chair. I mentioned earlier the speaker series, so hopefully they'll help facilitate that. Hopefully they'll attract excellent graduate students who are interested in Black Studies. Um, we are hoping that they uh, will make connections with the community in Kingston and do that kind of work around the Black community in Kingston, which you see um, scholar activists like Stephanie Simpson already doing. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, so helping out Stephanie Simpson and, 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 other, and other Black <laughs> faculty at Queen's with the kind of work that they do um, to make connections between the university and the wider Kingston community. Okay. So I'm excited. Nice, nice. So you've been working on this for quite some time. What's exciting you most about the new Black Studies program and its 
imminent launch? Um, so I would say I'm very excited for the students. Um, I have students now, um, I've, as I mentioned, I've had, you know, I've always had black students in my classes, really brilliant black students. Um, and I continue to have these students. And I feel like this is a bit of a, a gift for me and for them and for, for scholars who are interested in black studies to, you know, have this coherent, um, uh, program uh, have a program that's coherent and will speak to the needs of of black students staff and faculty I'm so so excited I'm I mean I'm not going to name any of my students names but I can see their faces and um, and you know for some of them I'm their very first black professor they've ever had and to be able to kind of say here's a pamphlet and here's everything about blackness at Queens that we have on, you know, on the roster at this moment from speaker series to, you know, activist projects to courses. It's that's, I'm, I'm extremely, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm over the moon about that. Um, and just being able to, to speak to the, the needs of, of black and other marginalized students. And I'm, I'm also super excited about, um, as I just mentioned, interdisciplinarity. I'm really excited about making connections with, with engineering, actually. <laughs> um, there's a black student um, group um, of engineers now at Queens. So I've been in contact with them. Um, I'm super excited about the possibility of Queens hiring a black physicist there's a postdoc. There's a postdoc now in black. A black postdoc in physics right now. Um, so as you know, that will be momentary. It'll be a year or two year postdoc. But I'm really excited about making interdisciplinary connections outside arts and science. So that's another another hopeful possibility. One thing I've noticed in our conversation is that you have a pretty good gauge on the number of black professors and black students in, at the university. How do you know this and why is it important? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. As a non-Black person, I don't mm -hmm. consider counting the white people at the university, mm -hmm. but I haven't really considered counting the Black people either. What's happening here? Um, I think, I mean, as I, you know, as I've said a few times, there have all, there's always been Black black people at Queens. Yeah. Um, but at this particular moment, I think it's important for us to recognize their existence because I feel like Queens is a place where you can kind of sort of just like roll through as a black person, do your work um, and not, and not make community. So the most important thing for me is to, you know, I think that black studies will be a node of sorts mm -hmm. where we can make connections with other black faculty um, and as I always say, non-Black faculty who are interested in Black studies. And so that, the numbers to me, I think the numbers, the numbers I have, I, one of the reasons I know is because I've worked on this application for, you know what I mean? I mean, it's like, um, and you sort of have to say, what is the student demand, right? And you have to sort of enumerate things. Right. Um, how many faculty are there who are, will teach these courses? So on the most basic level, that's why I know. Um, but I don't, but at the same time, those numbers aren't precise. Um, there are a lot, a lot of black students, for example, that group of engineers that I had no idea about. Mm -hmm. I was looking into thinking about black studies with the STEM um, community. And I was like, oh, and I just Googled black engineers at Queens and the student group popped up and I was like, this is amazing. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's, I think for me, it's like, the numbers don't so much matter so much as making community and knowing that students, you know, black students who might be struggling or who might be looking for a, a colleague or who are having trouble navigating the Queens landscape, know that there are other people out there. Like those black engineers can come to my office anytime they want, you know, mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't have, I don't know. My dad is an engineer, but I don't know much else except that my dad is an engineer. You're building bridges with engineers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> infrastructure, infrastructure. Um, 
But I think, yeah, so I think that's why it matters. And I've been thinking, you know, I've been working with Beverly Mullings um, in the geography and planning department about these kinds of numbers. What does it mean? Um, it, it speaks to your question, like, why is it important to do this kind of counting? And I think it's important um, just to, even if it's indirectly, let folks know that 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 we're there and that we're 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 you know we're fighting for it. especially the students we're fighting for them because it can be rough mm -hmm. it can be rough i've had students lined up out my door complaining about racism at queens complaining about professors using derogatory terms which i won't repeat right now in their classroom on the reg right Mm -hmm. professors I've never heard of, right? I don't know, the, you know, and I'm like, who? <laughs> um, but they, you know, they find you. And so, yeah, I think that's, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it's that kind of okay. providing a sense of community. All right. I appreciate that. It's just, I, I hadn't really thought of the number that you told us earlier that when you started, there were only six professors that were black Something at like Queen's that. University, yeah. and now there are about 20. Okay, I, I figured mm. there would be more than that. See, this is so weird. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure, for sure. And I yeah. think, I mean, I think you're right. And I think, I don't know when that engineering um, group began, the yeah. black engineering students, but I'm pretty sure it was in the last five years, right, yeah. where this you know, the boldness of, of racism on campus has, has intensified. I mean, I would argue since Obama, actually. Um, and then it escalated even more with Trump. And so, you know, the response is to like, it's not to abandon Queens, but it's like, how do I survive this? Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So hot take. First week of class is 2021. <laughs> what class are you going to teach and what lesson will blow their minds? So this is a hard one. Uh, this year I did the very first introduction to black studies at Queens, an online version. And so um, I would like to teach that course again, face-to-face. Um, uh, -face. And I don't know if that will be a possibility. So let's imagine, you know, the Dolly Parton, vaccine is working and, and we're back to work at um, in September. I would love, you know, I love to teach, as I said, I love teaching students about liberation. I begin with CLR James, James's The Black Jacobins, and I end with Ruth Wilson Gilmore's work on prison abolition. And I think about how those, The Black Jacobins is about um, the Haitian rebellion. And so what does that mean to begin with a plantation rebellion, like burn it down and then end with new questions about um, incarceration and liberation. Um, and in between there, my favorite is talking about black popular culture and, you know, talking about the complexity of hip hop. So those are, that's the, the signposts are different iterations of liberation. And the, the fun part is like talking about Megan the Stallion. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So that's our hot take for today, folks. So now I suppose too need to ask, while fall 2021, the launch of the Black Studies minor is still a ways away from uh, this time of year uh, in our lives in 2020. Do you think there is a potential for the creation of even a medial or major in Black Studies down the road. We're onboarding a QNS chair. That's a pretty mm -hmm. big deal. That seems to indicate to me that there could be room for a fair amount of growth. What do you think? I think there is room for growth. I agree. I think there's, I think we're, we're ready. You know, I think in a couple of years, we'll see what student interest is. Mm -hmm. Um, they have said in Indigenous studies, it's exploded um, student interest. And so um, as I moved the application, as I've been moving the application through, um, uh, many faculty have said, why isn't this a major? You know, you, the infrastructure is there. We actually probably have enough courses and faculty to do this. So I'm extremely hopeful that we can sort of speak to that if the student interest is sustained. Mm -hmm. um, 
we're being extremely modest. We're expecting one to two students to enroll in the minor in the first year um, and maybe moving that up to three or four. But faculty have said that it, you know, as I mentioned with York, it just went, you know, it just exploded. So we'll see. Um, and then, so there's that. We also have the possibility of the endowed chair in Black Studies through mm -hmm. um, policy studies and law, which is very exciting. Um, and as you said, the new QNS hires. And so, yeah, the growth is, ha I mean, it's happening. It's happening. And I'm, you know, there are times when I speak to, you know, admin at, uh, or, or colleagues um, who kind of see uh, this as um, like, they're like, they're kind of like, it's about time that Queens did this, this kind of attitude. Um, Queens, you know, it's about time we, we spoke to the racism at Queens. And yes, it is, of course. <laughs> But I also think in some ways Queens is doing a pretty, pretty good job. I mean, I, I will say there are over 20 lines at, at York in Black Studies um, mm -hmm. and probably 15 or so at University of Toronto. So if we compare that to our two lines in our chair, it's like, eh, it's not actually that much of a, of a push. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do, you know, I will say, you know, I was on two hiring committees in the last couple of years, one in African American history, one in African American literature, and also one in black geographies. So three, you know, and so it's imperfect. It's, it's not, it's not good enough, but it's also excellent work, I will say. So I always live in contradiction. So I'm good, you know, I'm excited and I'm excited about what, what will come next. Okay, so now I suppose we come to the elevator pitch. You see some students on campus. Hey, you first years, you should, you know, check out uh, some of the courses in this Black Studies minor. Yeah. Why would students want to participate and, and study? What would you tell them? I would say, I mean, and, and, you know, I've almost done that when I've run into Black students on campus. Like, why aren't you taking my class? <laughs> Hey, you, <laughs> just accosting some kids on the street. <laughs> I, I think, you know, as I've said a few times, I adore the students. And I think, you know, coming from a department that is invested in social change and social justice, like gender studies, I will, I, I think the Black Studies uh, minor will draw those kinds of students who are interested in that. And so the why, again, this is a different kind entry into the why question, but it's, it's like, this will give you the tools to do a range of things from diversity and equity work, um, you know, at the, at the most basic level to more sophisticated graduate work on, you know, black intellectual history. And so the, so yeah, come and work with us. Um, come and come and learn about you know learn from black people and from black studies about what liberation could be um, and I think as well I mean a lot of black studies departments in the U.S. advertise their courses like they do have a Beyonce course you know they do have a and and there's huge posters like where it's like you know what was one um, Beyonce feminism Rihanna womanism was one course like playing off the debates in black feminist thought and Neat. and using these you know and huh. so there is also another entryway into the these deeper conversations about what oppression is what does violence against women mean you know there's all sorts all these kinds of ideas around social justice black lives matter play out in popular culture in really interesting ways and so for those students who want to sort of test out Black Studies and maybe see if it is for them. Courses that speak to sound studies, Black popular culture, um, Black feminist thought, and so on and so forth will be really, really interesting for them because they begin from that, they, you sort of begin from the knowledge that students, students know who Beyonce is. What does it mean that she's lying on a cop car that's sinking into the, you know, sinking into a New Orleans 
river, right? Yeah. <laughs> like there's so much symbolism there. And so how do you teach them? How do you teach students how to engage with that material critically, but also, you know, enjoy it? Okay. So anything else to add about the program? Um, no, I think I've said everything. I mean, I, I want to thank you so much for your questions and for, for having me on the program. Um, I'm excited about this. I'm excited about Black Studies at Queen's. Um, as I said, I began in 2004 and I didn't think I'd still be here. Um, and uh, there are many, many people, um, I've mentioned them a few times, Beverly Mullins, Stephanie Simpson, Barrington Walker, who's no longer at Queen's, but um, that have made, ha have made me come into work. And so, um, so I appreciate this and I appreciate you giving me the space to, to talk about how exciting this, this new iteration of Queens is. Well, thank you very much for your valuable time. We really do appreciate it. And, and I'm looking forward to the first week of classes because I'd like CFRC to be at that first class, <laughs> getting the hot takes from the students who are milling into the classroom and maybe yeah. talking to the professor about, so what are you teaching? Teach us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I'm be, excited. <laughs> I'm excited. I can't wait. Okay, so I guess we just have a few minutes left. So... What song would you like to play on the airwaves before we, we depart? Um, I think that we should probably play um, Love on the Brain by Rihanna. Okay, so we've got some Rihanna coming up next right here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Folks, I have been in the virtual studio right here on Campus Beat with Professor Catherine McKittrick of Gender Studies here at Queen's University talking about this amazing new minor in Black Studies program that's coming to Queen's in the fall of 2021. Start looking out for registration information soon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Catherine. It's a really Thank good you, Dinah. Thank you.
just to get close to you Could we burn someday And I'll run for miles just to get a taste everyone. Welcome to another episode of Campus Beat. I am in the virtual studio today with Matthew Duda, a PhD candidate here at Queen's University in the Department of Biology and studying in the Pearl Lab with Dr. John Small and others. Welcome, Matthew, to the virtual studio here at CFRC. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Okay, Matthew, a lot of ground to cover today, and uh, we're going to be talking about some findings that uh, you and your group have recently discovered about some seabirds and their populations on the Atlantic coast. Uh, we're looking forward to hearing more about this. To begin, I see from your profile at Queen's University that you use paleolimnological techniques to assess the impact of changes in avian biovectors on freshwater ecosystems. That's quite the mouthful. For the lay people out there, can you tell us a little bit about your research here at Queen's University? Yeah, absolutely. So bird populations around the world are in decline, but the problem is we don't have a lot of long-term data that can actually support that and help us understand why they're in decline. You know, a lot of monitoring only started in the 1980s and so for seabirds that have a really long lifespan, it's difficult to understand when that population began to decline and to what, uh, what magnitude they actually have declined to. So to address this, we have to use a type of time machine that we use is lake sediments. Paleolimnology is really just the study of lake sediments. And because sediments are continually accumulating uh, they accumulate all the changes from surrounding the lake from within the lake and surrounding the lake you can uh, understand what the past conditions were like. So because we know that birds fertilize the environment with their guano and with their eggshells, and all of that gets washed into the lakes and accumulates at the bottom, we can use the lake sediments and go back in time and figure out how much nutrients there were in the past, which helps us understand that the bird population used to be larger or smaller and how it's changed through time. Okay, thank you so much for breaking that down for us. Now, we've recently learned from Queen's University that you, Professor John Small, and fellow collaborators with the Pearl Lab here at Queen's have uncovered new information indicating that a globally important seabird colony of storm petrels in the Atlantic region is now only 16% of its potential size, and that the small size is likely the result of nearby European settlement from over 200 years ago. So can you explain in more detail for us what your team has uncovered? Yeah, so we decided to study leeches storm petrel. They're a really cute small nocturnal bird that is on the Atlantic and west coast of Canada. And because they're so abundant, they're really important in ecological function. The problem is now that the world's populations of these storm petrels is declining, we need to figure out how to conserve them. So what we did is we went to Grand Colombier Island, which is in the St. Pierre Miquelon Archipelago in Newfoundland. It's actually a French overseas territory. And we went back in time. So using those paleoliminological techniques, we were able to go back 5,800 years. And we found a lot of really interesting and surprising results. The first was that the seabird population naturally fluctuates through time. That's kind of what we would expect. You know, these large numbers of birds, they're not expected to be stable. We're expecting them to move up and down in numbers. The really startling and surprising result was how much the population declined and the timing of that decline. Recently, we found that uh, when Europeans arrived in 1816, the population of storm petrels crashed. So if we go back in time, now the population is, if we go back in time, the population is only 16% of what it used to be. Right now, it's around 400,000 birds. 
but 200 years ago, we estimate that it could have been 2.4 million birds, so a huge decline. Wow, okay, so I'm wondering too, if the decline was limited to arrival and colonization of European settlers, or is it something that's happened over time to the present day? I looked up the leeches storm petrol via the Audubon Society, which notes the population is likely to still be in the millions, but is thought to have declined in more recent decades. So in your, in your findings, what has happened, uh, or what happened a couple of hundred years ago, and what might still be happening more recently? Yeah, so we need to really consider uh, both natural variability in the population, so those increases and decreases that happen over millennia, and then we need to consider the recent anthropogenic or human impacts that have happened on the population. Mm -hmm. So we're still looking to understand exactly what's happened, but naturally over the long term, the population fluctuated, likely due to uh, predators arriving. These small seabirds actually can move from island to island to avoid uh, negative impacts like predators or a really strong change in the climate, which you might expect in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. But recently, the impacts that uh, seem to have started when Europeans arrived have completely overwhelmed those natural cycles. You know, uh, human impacts, things like pollution, offshore oil rigs, light pollution um, have all started to negatively impact the storm petrel population. And then that's all compounded by the increasing impacts of climate warming. So it sounds like there's a combination of factors uh, even into the present day uh, related to human technology and human settlement. Um, but what, so what about a few hundred years ago though? What might've caused the drop in the populations then before the day of the oil rig? Yeah, so when Europeans arrived to Grand Colombier, they had a really uh, interesting type of relationship with the storm petrels. Mm -hmm. uh, there's sailors' records of um, going onto the island and actually eating some of these seabirds, but they were found to not be worth anything to eat because they're so oily. So instead, mm -hmm. what they ended up doing is actually using storm petrels as candles. Because they're so oily, oily yeah, they, they put a wick through the bird and you could light that and that would work similarly to a candle. Are, are you, really? You, you put a wick through the bird, like through its beak, right down through the bird and, and just light it up? Yeah. That's awful. That's, <laughs> That's, um, I guess it makes sense when you don't have anything else to use yeah. maybe, but wow, okay, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine being a, a, an early settler and that's, that's all you had to, to go off of to, to light, light your house, right? And, so. Yeah, okay, so burning birds, I, I'm assuming they're plucking the feathers and things like that first, but yikes. Okay, so th thank you for that. Uh, that. That sounds interesting too, that you were able to do a little bit of historical research uh, to make this project happen as well. Yeah, that was a really interesting and big part of it. I was lucky to go out to the, to the Queen's Library and they had a huge amount of resources about uh, old sailors' notes. A lot of these sailors took uh, diaries and took really detailed notes of what they were up to day to day. And I was able to incorporate some of that and add context to what our findings were. Amazing. So tell us about the scientific processes as well in determining this decline. Um, so you talked about being in Saint-Pierre-Miquelot, two French territories just south of Newfoundland. Um, so we know where your research was done. Uh, what did your experiments actually look like? How did you, in effect, do the science? Yeah, so we went to Grand Columbia Island, which is uh, uninhabited by people. It's just a rock essentially. And we put a boat on our back and climbed up to the top of the island and went to the pond where all of the seabird nutrients are being washed into. And we collected a big sediment core, which, uh, which is over a meter long. And we collected it using essentially a big straw. And then when we brought it back to the lab, what we did is we used proxies. So unfortunately, seabirds don't have, there's no direct way to track seabirds in the sediments. So what we use are indirect proxies. We know that seabirds introduce huge amounts of nutrients. We can look at nutrients in the core. And we know that they introduce isotopes like uh, nitrogen 15 
and heavy metals like cadmium and zinc. And we know that all of those uh, elements and components all increase as the storm petrel population increased. What we were able to do is look at all of those components together, see that all of, they, all of them increased at the same time and then declined at the same time, which we could then use to infer what happened with the storm petrel population. Wow, thank you so much. I'm not a scientist. It's fun to be able to get a get a picture of what it actually looks like. Thank you for take, taking us on this little journey. Um, okay, so Matthew, you've also recently stated the rapid decline in this globally significant storm petrel population may be regarded as a quote, canary in a coal mine for the Atlantic Ocean, for Atlantic Ocean health, unquote. And further, uh, that the population of the storm petrel is approaching the lowest numbers in the region's 5,800 year record without any evidence of recovery. So tell us more about the significance of this research in, in contemporary contexts, conservation, for example. What does the research tell us and how, how are we to act on it? Yeah, so storm petrels and a lot of seabirds are at the top of their food web. So what, we, what I mean by it's signaling uh, a canary in a gold mine essentially is that any kind of negative or different kind of changes that are happening in the ocean are going to be funneled up to the storm petrels the, and other seabirds that are at the top of the food web. So based on declines in storm petrels, you can start to make inferences beyond just their population, but of the, uh, the ocean health and marine health in total. So if seabirds are declining, it also means that their prey, like fish, are also declining. There's several uh, confounding negative impacts that are happening. So what do we do about this? Well, the first thing is first, we need to understand the uh, the temporal context to know that the population is declining. Before the study, we didn't know that the Grand Colombier storm petrel colony was in decline. Mm -hmm. So we need to expand the time scale to first understand the, the magnitude of biological loss that we're having. And once you begin to understand the amount of loss that we're having, you can start to make the most effective conservation. Mm -hmm. So what do we really need to do? Well, I, the first thing is expand management areas. Instead of these small little islands that are completely uh, disparate, if you have larger management areas and allow for birds to migrate between those islands, because obviously they can fly, so they're moving, you can uh, begin to conserve them. Yeah, the main thing that I think is important with this kind of work is increasing awareness on how to conserve these kinds of birds and increasing the awareness of storm petrels. And they're one of the most abundant seabirds that we have in Canada, but not a lot of people are aware of them. So, yeah. Okay. So again, back to the science, where are you going from here with the research? What are your next steps? So the main finding from this work was that, you know, that long-term context is super important for us to understand which populations are in decline and how to conserve them. So we did that for Grand Columbia Island. So now my goal is to look at other important seabird colonies. Is this a unique feature that we're seeing on just this island that the, the European arrival has really caused such a negative impact on storm petrels? What if we look at other islands? What if we look at other seabirds and we expand the scope? Is this something that we're seeing on a global scale? And that's the, really the main kind of questions that I'll be asking. You know, trying to uh, quantify and examine the level of species decline. Okay. All right. So, Matthew, thank you very much for joining us in the virtual studio today to share so much with us about this fascinating research that you've been doing with your team uh, out in the Atlantic in the Saint-Pierre and Miquelon Archipelago. Uh, we really do appreciate your time. Thank you for teaching us a little bit about the science as well and the impact of the research. We really, I really enjoyed this time with you. Yeah, thanks very much. Appreciate it.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 